I wanted to talk about an old teaching and how it shows up in Zen. The old teaching is what um, the Buddha called the threefold training. He divides the Eightfold Path, which some of you may know, which is um, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right view. And these are the eight things that the Buddha asked us to pay attention to for dukkha, what we usually translate as suffering, this unsatisfactory sense that we have about life, for it to end. But he divided them, those eight, into three. And this is what he called the threefold training. The three are chitta which is Kanda is, for those who know the word skanda, kanda is the Pali version of the word skanda, which just means a grouping or an aggregate or a bundle. So chitta is the word, there's, there's three, I won't go into all three, but there's three major ways, three words that are translated into mind usually. This is one of them, chitta. And when the Buddha used the word chitta, it seems what he was referring to was mind in the way we experience it not as an organ, not as a discerning, just the discerning quality of mind, but the whole of the mind, everything that arises, the entire thing, all of our experience, what's sometimes called the phenomenological mind, the mind that we're always experiencing. This is where we work. This is the mind where we do the work. So, one grouping is Chitakanda, and that is... Um, what I'm going to talk about today, which is um, effort, mindfulness, and what am I forgetting? Effort, mindfulness, and samadhi, concentration. Um, the other, one of the other trainings was sila, which is behavioral discipline. Okay, so that's speech and action and livelihood. So this is where we bring our attention to our behavior and our actions in the world. So we have one that focuses on the mind, we have one that focuses on our action in the world, and then we have um, panyakanda, which in the way we use the word prajna, prajna, the prajna grouping, which is um, view and intention. And here we're looking at uh, wisdom and the intentions that arise from wisdom, or view and the intention that arises from view. Because for the Buddha, all intentions come from view. We don't have an intention that isn't, doesn't arise from and isn't colored by the view from which it arises. This is very, very important. So a lot of times, the, these three are listed with the behavioral discipline, discipline first, with the um, paying attention to the mind second, and um, ultimate prajna or wisdom third, except that there's mundane view and there's the higher view. And the mundane view, and this gets down to the nitty gritty of practice here, the mundane view is how we, what brings us to actually start being able to practice. 
Where do we even come? How can we begin practicing? And for the Buddha, what was key to, for that was the admission of the idea of karma. Was that if we didn't understand our mind as something that is conditioned, and that could be reconditioned, then what are we doing? You can't even begin to talk about speech and action and all of that. We have to have the initial view. And we may not. When we walk in the door, we may not have this view. When we walk in the door of a Zen center, we may have all kinds of views. But, um, but until we take what Dogen often calls the backward step, or until we take responsibility for the mind as a conditioned event in the world, then practice doesn't start. We're sitting still on cushions, and that's important. And that's starting to maybe build capacity to take responsibility for the mind, or to recognize conditioning, or to recognize karma. But the practice, as the Buddha understood it, and as we understand it in Buddhism and in Zen, is it starts with recognizing a conditioned mind. For most of us, that starts, that recognition happens pretty quickly. You know, if we sit down, and we start looking, and oh, there's all of this stuff there that we didn't expect. And where is that coming from? And that's not the way I normally view myself, and I have a much different opinion than what's arising. And then all these things that are arising are all these opinions that, that, that I feel more deeply, and how am I going to take responsibility for those? How am I going to let them continue to affect me and affect other people? So this is the gate. This is the gate in. But in Zen, we actually don't, at least the way we do it in this center and the way most places I've been, we don't request when people walk in the door to start working with morality. Right? We don't even request that they have you know, any kind of understanding of karma or their own conditioning. We just ask them to sit down. Just sit down and be quiet and face the wall. And here are some things to do. Like, look at your breath, or be with your breath. So, what is the view there that that's the first instruction? Now, part of it is that Zen is the sitting school, right? That's what Zen means. So, so we, sitting concentration is the anchor of the practice. That is not true of all schools of Buddhism. So, but it is certainly true of Zen, and it is true of the schools of Buddhism that seem to have the most recognition in the United States. Um, but we have folks focus on Chittakanda first, on um, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration first thing. And part of this is because we come from the school of Dogen, Ehe Dogen, 13th century um, Japanese monk who's considered the founder of this school. And for him, sitting upright in samadhi or in concentration or in zazen held all the precepts. All the precepts are being held when we're sitting in zazen. We're paying attention to our conditioning, and we're cutting off the unconscious outpouring 
of unwholesome actions because we're not reacting. We're letting it bang around in our mind. Now that's the beginning of upholding the precepts. Eventually, the upholding of the precepts becomes purified, you might say, if we want to use that word, and they don't, even those intentions don't arise anymore. Those intentions that cause us suffering cease, start to cease to arise or become less and less frequent. But, um, but we ask to sit. So these three aspects, you're doing them, you're all doing them uh, to greater or lesser degrees. These three aspects of sitting. So when somebody comes into a Zen practice center, we ask you to sit down, pay attention to the breath, and if your thoughts start going wild, bring it back to the breath over and over and over and over again until two things happen. Until the mind is able to rest in the breath and until we're not so tossed around by the thoughts that rise and fall away. Because as we begin to settle into the breath, a thought can come up and we can see it and it can fall away. So, effort is a commitment to that. So the first one, right effort, we commit to that. There is a, I've been, I've been studying this, um, so one of the very first uh, sets of rules for the for Zen monastery that we have is by a, um, a man who supposedly lived between about 720 and 820 in China by the name of Bai Zhang Huaihe. And um, he wrote 12 essential rules for a Zen community. And there's one that has to do with this effort, where he says, upholding discipline is of first importance in making energetic progress. Now, we don't usually use the word progress, but we'll just let it be there for a minute. But upholding discipline is of first importance in making energetic progress. Now this upholding discipline, you know, this is, what is effort? Okay, what do we mean by effort in our school? Because we talk a lot about effortless effort and um, not having goals and not thinking about progress and not putting too much energy into things and all of this. So what's effort look like when we're coming out of a society that actually believes in this other kind of effort, which is full of a lot of force and a lot of ego and a lot of energy. And for us, effort is allowing ourselves to simply fall into the discipline of the form. So if Zazen is upright sitting with the spine straight and the shoulders relaxed and the hands in this mudra, then we just let ourselves be this. And when we see that fall apart, we bring ourselves back to it. It's effort to bring ourselves back to the breath over and over and over. We don't have to get uptight about it. We just recognize it's the form. If we bow a certain way and we have all kinds of thoughts about it, fine, you have all kinds of thoughts about it. But the effort is to do it anyway. The effort is to do the forms anyway. And in doing so, um, we actually start to see our resistances to it. 
We start to see the way our mind scrambles when people make certain suggestions that we do certain things. But over time, what happens is not that the ego makes itself more powerful, which is what the kind of subtle hope, I think, that most of us have in some form or another when we first come to this practice. I'll be a bigger, better, happier, quieter, super relaxed ego. Um, or whatever it is that feels no pain ever. Um, but instead, in Zen, we let our effort is to let our structural integrity, to use that term, our integrity to be cultivated by giving in to the structure of the forms. They train us. We may have different ideas about what, it, what we think, how we think we should be trained. And all of us do. But then, what about that is engaging our grasping if we're always just doing the things that we want to do? If we're constantly negotiating every tiny little aspect of the practice that we don't think is for us. A lot of our effort in that scenario becomes resistance, the effort of resistance. And applying all this effort to um, deciding if we're going to be loyal to resistance or loyal to form. None of this is to say we shouldn't have a critical I, a wisely critical eye when certain ways of doing things feel inappropriate, unjust, violent, etc. We certainly should. That's usually, that's often not what's happening when we're struggling. What is it about the bow that we might insist that we not apply effort there. Or when our effort drops off, when we get up from the cushion and we walk somewhere and suddenly whew, the, we're all about the form of zazen, but maybe we're not so much about the form, the way we walk and move through a space. Maybe that form we're not so interested in. So to, um, so in this time, in this three days, there are, and we don't all know them. I mean, we're new. Some are new and, and so on, and that's fine. But if you notice ways of doing things, let yourself, um, when the noise of the mind comes up, let yourself rest in whatever form's happening, even if you have no idea what you're doing. Rest in having no idea what you're doing. Because we are settling, even if we don't know it. The awake mind, the liberated mind, is always present. It's just we're only loyal to one little tiny part of it. And we resist all the other aspects of it. But if we didn't resist all other aspects, then what would be available to us would be the whole of the liberated mind. 
a mind that's liberated from our tiny loyalties. Our loyalties to just little sections of what we are. And so in doing this practice, in this kind of effort, we're slowly calling into question and allowing to relax those little loyalties that keep us from a greater awake mind that is there. We don't have to become anything else. We actually are it already. So, effort. Effort has more to do with rest, I think, than it has to do with struggle. And this isn't to say, you know, this isn't to say that there isn't some energy that has to happen, because at first we certainly have to increase our energy to do this. To sit up straight takes energy at first until it doesn't. And then it just doesn't, because the body is disciplined. Um, to move with... Um, gentleness and sensitivity and awareness takes work at first until it doesn't. So the next one is, is um, sati, which is this word that's translated as mindfulness. And the way mindfulness is used in this country has now means about everything that has to do with the mind. But, um, and meditation, but the Buddha meant it in a very specific way, and that is um, the cultivation of a mind that could be still with whatever was arising. In other words, it wouldn't grasp onto it and it wouldn't push it away. Sati very specifically means this, this mind where compulsive desire Upadana, the grasping of the mind, starts to erode. And we can have very, very painful things arise, and we can have things that we're very excited about arise, and the mind can be still. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy those things. In fact, enjoyment often, enjoyment usually increases with the capacity of the mind being able to be still with whatever arises. Because the enjoyment and happiness of the mind is no longer dependent on objects. It becomes its natural, relaxed state. Because it doesn't need specific objects to get a charge out of anymore. So, when we ask, when we're, when we're doing this practice of zazen here, and we're saying, bring the mind back to the breath, bringing the mind back to the breath is building what we'll talk about next, which is concentration. But it's also building something else, which every time you notice yourself caught in thought, you turn away. You just turn away and go to the breath. Now there's a very strong thought, I'm going to go to the breath. Every time we make the choice to go to the breath, we cultivate freedom. Every time. And we just do it again, and again, and again, and again. We're cultivating liberation at that moment, because we see it, and we can make a choice. Now up until sitting still and doing this, most of us, at least certainly me, had no idea there was a choice point at that moment. There was just whatever I thought, it was true, and I did what I was told, based on the way my mind was conditioned. So the, the view to intention to action was just one. 
There was no anything. That, that was just one movement that I had no insight in. But now, before we can even start to discern view and intention and start to get detailed in that way, we actually have to be able to um, be still enough to allow a phenomenon to arise or an object or a pain or a thought or a memory or a future worry or whatever it is. We have to be able to have that come up and be still enough to see it. Otherwise, inspection is pretty difficult. So seeing what's actually happening there is difficult. And if what we're concerned about, which we go back to mundane right view, if we're, what we're concerned about is understanding our conditioning and relieving ourselves from suffering and dukkha, then we've got to get detailed at some point. We've got to start understanding what all the way down, we look at our behavior, we back up to our intention, and we get all the way down to these deeply held views that, we may, that we're often not aware of until we sit for a while. But that path is a burning path. Even if we've developed a great deal of stable mind, that path is a path where the body has to feel its history, has to know itself, has to be embarrassed by its views, shocked by its views, on and on. And that is, um, it sounds funny to say, but that is the path to happiness. That is the path to being free from all of that. You know, Dogen says in the Genjo Koan, to study the self is to forget the self. There's no forgetting the self without the study of the self. <coughs> and there's no studying of the self without building the mental capacities to study. It would be like trying to read this page, I don't know, on inside a cement mixer, just being thrown around all the time and trying to read. You know, that's what, that's what study <laughs> is like before we, um, before we build up the stability of the mind. And at some point, the internal mind is more like sitting at appropriate, an appropriate desk with proper light and, in my case, these glasses. But um, So, back to these rules that Baijiang had. Actually, do I want to say anything about Dogen? So this mindfulness, you might remember if you've been here a while, for a, a while ago, it's been a while, um, we studied on a couple of occasions this um, text from the third ancestor in China called the Xinxin Ming. And this text is all about, it's basically a long text about not grasping, um, not grasping, but not even discerning good and evil in the mind. Not getting wrapped up 
and good and evil in the mind. And this isn't because there's some request to shut down our, um, our understanding of what is uh, loving and what is destructive in the world. That's not the request here. The request here is, if we are caught up in that kind of dualism in the mind, it becomes very difficult to be still in the mind. If we're obsessed with good and evil in the mind all the time, good thought, bad thought, evil thought, this, that, that, you know, we're just doing this with the mind all the time. We give up that calculation. And that insight, this is where insight and practice so deeply support each other, that view, that insight allows us to start letting the phenomena of the mind just come and go and come and go and come and go and come and go and they stop getting in the way. The fear that often arises in this discussion is that, um, well, if I do that, how am I going to know how to, how am I going to respond to the world? How am I going to know? Well, it turns out that Anchoring ourselves only in the dualistic thinking mind does not give us all the information we need to respond skillfully to the world. That without a deeper connection to the body's natural understanding of its interconnectedness to everything, without the heart's natural understanding that to experience another person's suffering is actually experienced in my heart as my own. Without that understanding, it's very hard to know how to make reasonable, skillful decisions about how to act morally in the world. And that usually what we're doing is making those decisions in a tight little intellectual box that are conditioned by all kinds of things that we've inherited and most of which we're not very aware of. So within the logic of that tight little intellectual box, the idea of giving up these intellectual categories is terrifying. But that's because there's no faith at that point in the natural wisdom of life, in the natural wisdom of our bodies. That isn't there yet. And so it's scary. But that, and it's not to say that discerning mind is not extremely helpful. It's very helpful. It just can't drive. It's not the driver. It's the guy with the map that gives you, you know, the next place, you know, some information. But, um, but the driver needs to be the whole, and for the, um, and I'll move on to this next piece that's called samadhi, um, right concentration. But um, it's the whole of the body and mind that gives us the information that's required to know what's skillful morally in a given moment. And the degree to which we limit our connection to that whole is the degree to which we limit wisdom. And even with the whole of, even with a loyalty to the whole of the body and mind, to all of citta, to all of that's arising, we're still limited. 
is to occupy a physical position in the world. We don't have some super capacity, but we at least have everything that's available to this one available. So the next one, the next piece is samadhi, which is sam, that root, you know, it's the same root as sangha, and um, which is the community of um, Buddhist practitioners, and usually the way it's, it's connected, it's the same root as same in English, but um, that root usually means, it means a few things, it, means, it can mean the same as, it can mean to gather together, can mean one, a multiplicity is one. But in, in this case, it means to gather. So samadhi, what we translate as concentration, samadhi is to gather the whole of the mind. So when we're doing this um, activity of wrestling with everything that's happening, the mind isn't gathered. Mine's over here for a little bit, it's over here, it's over there, it's over. These things are arising, and with every arising, the attention of the mind zooms over to whatever is arising at that point. And um, by bringing, at first, at first, the cultivation of this kind of concentration is to give it an object to kind of glue it to. So we give ourselves the breath. And in the beginning, the breath feels like an object. I'm up here, I'm looking down at the breath, you know. Or even if I'm not that heady, I'm still kind of treating the breath as this object. Over time, that settles, and it's the breath as the breath. The you know, the Buddha said in, the, in, in, the, in an early sutra, he said, be aware of the body as the body. Be mindful of the body as the body. Because he was trying to point to treating the body as an object. But to actually allow the body to have its awareness, to have its, um, the hand is aware of the hand. I don't need to create some watcher that pays attention to the hand and invest in that watcher. But we have that experience, right? We have the experience, pay attention to the breath. Okay, I'm going to turn the watcher to the breath. And that's how it is for a while. I'm going to turn the watcher to the breath. And that's fine. The watcher needs to be able to concentrate. The watcher needs to stop bouncing all over the place all the time. So we give it an object, so we're going to give it the breath, and now the watcher, which you can, isn't there, but we're going to, you know, we're going to, it's a necessary kind of transitional tool. We're going to give the watcher something to do. And eventually, you know, one of the reasons we do this, this mudra and Zen, we put it right at a place that's called the hara. Okay. And one of the old Zen instructions is to drop the mind into the hara. To let attention be down here. And by using this mudra like this, it concentrates the energy of that 
area. And then we just drop attention into that place so that we start to have an experience, especially first of the breath, which w instead of doing it up high, we, we usually ask people to have an awareness of their breath at the deepest point they feel it in their body. So that can be here in the beginning, it can be here, it can be very deep, it can be the whole body at a certain point, it's the entire body. Um, that movement from the watcher that's treating the breath as an object to the breath knowing the breath is the movement of us starting to divide our attention from a kind of egoic little spot that we're invested in as me, which actually, if you pay attention to it, it moves around all over the place. There's no fixed position. But um, it actually arises with an object. If there's one object, then, then a particular flavor of the watcher arises, and then another, and then another, and then another, and another, depending on what the particularity of your um, emotional energy or whatever's arising for you is. Because these things are all born at different parts of our lives. So there are many selves born at many times. But um, as we begin to let the breath fall into the breath, it's not dissimilar. It's the same process as effort where we let ourselves fall into the discipline of the form. Instead of having the watcher person is saying, I like the form, I don't like the form. Just drop into it. This is the same as dropping into the breath or dropping into the body. We start living as a body instead of living as a little tiny mind behind eyes or however you experience it. People experience it in different ways. People experience the bodily, and this is an important thing to study, right? We all experience the separation of ourselves in different ways bodily. There's a discursive piece to it, which is how do I tell myself a story of separation in all of the views that I have? But then there's a physiological experience of it. And um, we need to become very intimate with that bodily experience and how we partition Chitta, the whole of the mind. So samadhi is um, that concentration becomes the breath resting on itself. So there's some effort in the beginning that's really gross, and um, we're focusing on it. And then that becomes more subtle. The breath becomes more subtle. And we find ourselves resting in the breath. And the rest is the attention. This, the flavor of the attention, the flavor of the concentration is rest itself. We can just let the mind rest on the object. Because there's not as, because of, because we've built up um, sati, mindfulness, because we're not struggling, that need to overcome the struggle with some sort of concentration that's strong can fall away because we're not struggling anymore. We're not having to fight through things. And we can just let the mind rest on the object. Now, eventually what happens is that the mind can rest on the whole of the mind, but that's down the ways. Where the actual object of mind becomes mind. And so everything can arise and the mind doesn't move around. And that's when 
what the Buddha called citta, is resting on citta. Or what we call shikantaza, which is this kind of sitting meditation that is our, um, where we end up, where we're, we're literally doing nothing. We're sitting down and we're letting the mind be the mind. And whatever rises and falls in the mind, rises and falls in the mind, and we don't move. And this allows for deep freedom of who we are. We're not wrestling with who we are. And all of this, you know, this sounds, it can sound very technical, and um, you're doing it all. But... um, The Buddha was very, very clear that this was focused, this is focused on um, the alleviation of dukkha, of suffering in the world. And for our tradition, for the Mahayana tradition, everyone's dukkha. That we're building these capacities for the alleviation of the suffering of everyone. And we're working for the freedom of everyone. So I talked about, um, when, when talking about mindfulness, I'm going to jump back. When talking about mindfulness, one of the phrases that's in these 20, 20th century rules, 20th century rules for a Zen community, is this line, liberation comes through not separating affirmation and denial. Affirmation, or we can say um, grasping and aversion, or good and evil. So liberation... This is what one of the aspects of, of sati or mindfulness is this kind of liberation. But we're not separating, we're not getting caught up in dividing up the mind. We're just letting it be. And that very process begins the liberatory process. And then the gathering of the mind also supports that because we're not chopping the mind up. We're bringing it from behind completely together as one, every direction. Everything that is your experience right now is what you are. Not some little corned off tiny thing back here that's looking out. That is the false who you are. What you are is everything that's arising in perception. That's what you are. I am everyone in this room. And the sounds outside and the poles and the supports and the air conditioner, that's what I am. That's not metaphor. That's a lack, that's lack of confusion. And in terms of samadhi, I love this line. The power of concentration or the power of samadhi enables one to meet danger without being confused. A whole mind allows us to meet the suffering of the world, the danger of the world, the violence of the world, the difficulty of the world, without being confused. Without moving to one side of the argument, because our conditioning tells us to do that. But to let the whole of whatever it is meet the whole of what I am. And the whole of what it is at that moment is an aspect of the whole of what I am. 
and to let that be there. And then from that, begin to act. Begin to move from this training into our behavior, into our view and into our intention and into our behavior. And I've been saying this quote all over the place because I, I just think it's so appropriate right now when people are asking, what do we do um, with whatever's happening in the world? And it's this, uh, I think I said at the last retreat, it's this Archilochus quote, which is why I'm so interested in this threefold training. So Archilochus is this Greek poet from 7th century BCE. And he said, we do not rise to the level of our expectations, but fall to the level of our training. And, um, and so what's our training? What's the training we fall to? And the Buddha laid out a pretty clear training. He was very, very specific. These are the things you need to be paying attention to. These are the things we need to make sure we're up on. We need to cultivate a particular kind of mind that allows for the integrity of a compassionate response. This, um, what starts this whole thing, sitting down and recognizing that the mind is conditioned and that we need to um, cultivate a particular mind to meet those, to meet the, uh, those conditions and to understand them fully. This is what's behind this last, we just chanted together. Quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions. As this practice is the exact transmission of a verified Buddha. Confessing and repenting in this way. Confessing the way, our condition, uh, the way we're conditioned. And the ones that are unwholesome, the unwholesome conditioning, we say, no, I'm not going to do my best not to do that anymore. There is no what I'll call religious practice because spirituality is too loose of a term the way we use it to, to hold what I'm about to say. But what I would call a religious practice is always includes some form of repentance and confession. There is no such thing of actually being engaged in the transformation of ourselves in a way that increases love and compassion and decreases harm without having a relationship to ourselves that's about honest repentance and confession. That's what renunciation is. So confessing and repenting in this way, one never fails to receive the profound help from all Buddhas and ancestors by revealing and disclosing our lack of faith and practice before the Buddha. We melt away the root of transgressions by the power of our confession and repentance. This is the pure and simple color of true practice, of the true mind of faith, of the true body of faith. 
eventually where we end up is, in, is as the true body of faith. As the mind settles and the body comes online fully, and the mind comes online fully because they can't be separated, we become the true mind of faith and the true body of faith. It is no longer simply, it's not not an individual, but it's no longer simply an individual that's responding, but the whole of the Dharma responding through the individual. The whole of the teaching responding through. All of the Buddhas, everyone who's ever practiced before us and held this up and clarified conditioned minds in the world, they are responding through us. Because without them, we're not here. We're not doing this. Without that clarity and that upholding through generation after generation after generation, none of us do any of this. So they're in us now, the minute we choose to take up this practice. And I hope we meet them with gratitude and humility. I hope I meet them with gratitude and humility. So one of the wonderful um, side effects of this change in concentration is ease. Is this mind resting on object? Is this mind resting on itself? Is the body resting within the body? Is a life of ease. And that doesn't mean that we stop feeling um, the pain of the world. In fact, quite the opposite. <laughs> the ease allows us to fully feel the suffering of the world because we don't have to resist it anymore. There's an underlying ease to what we are as beings. And so when the deep heartbreak over the world comes up in us as it should, also the deep joy. Avalokiteshvara, her name can be, is both cries and joys of the world. Feeling all the cries and joys of the world. When these come up, and sometimes the joy is overwhelming, it's not just the suffering that's overwhelming. There are some of us who resist joy. Um, we can meet that from a place of ease. So I'll just say something about Dogen's notion of this practice. He um, talked about, we're, about to, we're going to chant what's called the Fukan Zazengi, which is one of the very first things he wrote when he came back to Japan from China. And it was to tell everybody to sit Zazen, basically. Um, if you concentrate your effort single-mindedly, Okay, so single-mindedly is often a way we talk about concentration in the early phase of concentration where you're concentrating on argument, um, on an object. If you concentrate your effort single-mindedly, that in itself is negotiating the way, the whole of the Buddha way. Now, this is, this is a hyphenated word that he uses all the time. Practice realization is naturally undefiled. Going forward in practice is a matter of everydayness. Now, practice realization, I love this. It's undefiled, but don't think you are going to some transcendent pure realm. 
when we use the word undefiled, and he automatically follow, follows it with going forward in practice as a matter of everydayness. So the undefiled nature, the mind that's being purified by these activities, it, those are allowing it to experience actually its everydayness. We're not getting to some sort of mind that's beyond the world. The mind that's beyond the world is the mind we normally walk around in. That's the mind beyond the world. That's the one who's trying to manufacture this whole perfect controlled reality that isn't life. So we don't actually come to Zen to cultivate a mind beyond the world. We come to Zen to let go of the mind that thinks it's beyond the world and fall into the everydayness of our existence, of our lives together. But this term, practice realization, one of the things that he was really focused on was um, this, what he disagreed with was this idea, what we call steps and stages, where you practice, 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 and then you have a big insight. And that insight makes you a different kind of a person. And some people believe that you get to a point you can stop practicing because you have this big insight. And Dogen saw a couple of things, and this is why the threefold training is, is interesting in our lineage because he's, he's one of the people responsible for bringing the precepts back full force into Zen, which are the moral precepts that we follow. And the reason is, is he would see people who had this notion of practice and they would act in all kinds of ways that were not generous, kind, loving, what he considered awake. And so he's some, something is very wrong about this way. So he went to his own experience. He said, that, it's not my experience at all that practice and realization could be separated. In fact, the very thing that brings us to practice is realization, is an insight. At some point in time, you have an insight, and some Zen teachers say this is actually the greatest insight of all of practice, is the first one, which is that I'm suffering, and I need to do something about it. This is not a given. This insight isn't, not everyone's having this insight. I wish everyone had this insight. But, um, but it's not there, so what are the causes and conditions of that insight? Did we decide at an early age, I am going to suffer miserably for the next 26 years so that I can have this insight that I'm suffering? <laughs> you know, this is uh, probably not. Um, so clearly, there is, we don't know where that insight comes from. And this remains true. Even though we're practicing and there are insights and we see things, Practice is certainly tied up with insight. Insights wouldn't happen without practice. Clarification might not happen. But they are, it's not a one-to-one -one relationship. Insights are still grace, just like the first one. We can't separate practice from realization, and we can't merge them. The training of our mind allows realization to happen, but we cannot reduce realization to the training of our minds. So we have to live in both worlds that the Buddha asked us to live in, which is there is liberation 
where one can completely be free of one's karma, and we have to pay attention to the wholesome and unwholesome nature of our actions. Both of those things have to happen all of the time. And liberation is being liberated into the responsibility, one aspect of liberation, is being liberated into taking full responsibility for the effects of my actions and for the practice that I embody. So I live the embodiment of the practice, and there's realization, and I drive that realization back into the practice. Or what I was told once by a Zen teacher, uh, until your insight affects the way you put down a teacup, it's irrelevant. If it doesn't affect the way your hand moves and the way you greet other people and the way we express ourselves to each other and the way we take responsibility for our conditioning about other human beings, until those things happen, and any number of other things, any insight you have on these cushions, I don't care how big and a nuclear blast it is of an insight, it doesn't matter if we separate it off from our practice and our embodied expression in the world. That's where it actually bears fruit. Up until that point of its bearing fruit, it's an idea. It's a memory of a really cool moment that we had. So you'll see all through Dogen, yeah, we're practicing and we're doing this and we're training the mind and that's important. But in the end, and this is what we'll talk about tomorrow when we talk about sila and, 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 and looking at our behavior, in the end, it has to do with the way we behave in the world. And, you know, not just the way we behave in our world, but the way we talk to ourselves. <laughs> the way we behave to it. We're the world, too. We're not separate from the world. All the, um, all the admonishing to be kind and reminding us, all that has to do with us, too. In fact, we cannot be kind to other people if we're not kind to ourselves. Very, very difficult. So there is another writing. Dogen wrote like crazy. I don't know when he had time for this. Um, <laughs> but, um, and they're all beautiful. They're all these incredibly written documents. Um, but this is, this is a major encouragement around Zazen as we sit together over the next few days. It's the last two paragraphs of what's called the Ehe Koso Hotsuganmon. The Zazen of even one person at one moment imperceptibly accords with all things and fully resonates through all time. Okay, I'm just going to say that one more time. The Zazen of even one person at one moment imperceptibly accords with all things and fully resonates through all time. Thus, in the past, future, and present of the limitless universe, this Sazen carries on the Buddha's teaching endlessly. Each moment of Sazen is equally wholeness of practice, equally wholeness of realization. This is not only practice while sitting, it is like a hammer striking emptiness before and after. Its exquisite peel permeates everywhere. How can it be limited to this moment? Hundreds of things all manifest original practice from the original face. It is impossible to measure.
Know that even if all the Buddhas of the ten directions, as innumerable as the sands of the Ganges itself, exert their entire strength, and with the Buddha's wisdom try to measure the merit of one person's zazen, they will not be able to fully comprehend it. Because we are settling even if we don't know we're settling. Because our wisdom is increasing even if we don't know it is. Because awake mind is there regardless of what we think about it. Because our loyalties are small, not our mind. So it's a matter of attending to our loyalties. So we will proceed with two things. A deep devotion to understanding the conditioning that causes harm in the world and in ourselves. We have a devotion to understanding what that is and seeing what that is. That never ends. That practice never stops. We say in our precepts to our ceremony, even after you are fully liberated, do you promise to continue practicing these precepts? Paraphrasing. But do you promise to keep practicing moral discipline even after realization has been fully um, brought to bear on you? Because for Dogen to not do that would to be have an incomplete insight. That the expression of total insight is a desire to carry out the precepts. And if the desire to continue the precepts isn't there, then that's evidence that the insight was shallow. And then we also let ourselves to the degree that we can rest in the mind of true mind of faith and rest in the true body of faith. That which is underneath, around, and throughout everything that we think we know. Let the earth hold us. Let the ancestors hold us. Let one another hold us. Let the deep connection that is what we are manifest in us as faith in that. We're about to chant the Fukan Zazengi. There are two stories that I'll use to close. One story is a Zen story. It's actually older. It's an old story that all kinds of spiritual traditions use, which is this king sends blind men to find out what an elephant is, right? And they all go, and they all feel different parts of the elephant, and they all come back, and they report different things. The one who feels the tail says one thing. The one who feels the back says another. This is our spiritual practice for many years. We have an idea of what the true nature of mind is, of what awakening is. And it's the one we want. Whatever our particular little blind egoic position is, this is, this is enlightenment and this is the one I want. But none of us know. None of us actually know what we're talking about. And so we come back with all sorts of descriptions, but not only do we do that, this leads into another story. There was, um, it's often called, there was a monk who loved dragons, and so he had all these images of dragons all over his room. 
watched, read stories about dragons. Everything's wonderful. And then a dragon hears that this guy loves dragons. And so he shows up at his window someday, one day. And the monk looks at the dragon and runs away as fast as he can. <laughs> so, in both cases, we're talking about wisdom. But in, in, in Chan and in Zen, the dragon represents wisdom. And so we have all kinds of, we erect all kinds of ideas about wisdom. But when wisdom shows up, we run as fast as we can. Because real wisdom does not contain the things that we really politely would like it to contain. We want it to be a nice, polite wisdom that doesn't challenge us too much. Wisdom is going to take everything you hold dear from you. Everything that we think we are goes. Bodhidharma, nothing sacred. Everything is empty. Freedom takes no prisoners. So, the line that starts the last paragraph of the Fukunza Zengi that we are going to chant, please, honored followers of Zen, long accustomed to groping the elephant, groping, do not be suspicious of the true dragon. Long accustomed to groping for the elephant, do not be suspicious of the true dragon. Sit. You, we're, we're all groping for the elephant, but let's sit with faith in the true dragon, with the fearlessness that's required to sit in faith of the true dragon. And we will do that together and support each other. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.